One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. You're going to need to maintain your sobriety the rest of your life, which originally sounds like this awful and daunting thing. But what I found is that the things that I do to maintain my sobriety are the same things that make me happy and serene and peaceful. They're the same thing. So I'm driven to those things kind of under the threat of death in my case. But sooner or later, I realize like, well, those are the things I want to be doing. So at some point in our lives, we all get knocked down on some level. Today's guest, Eric Zimmer, got hit pretty hard when he got knocked down. It was a bit earlier in his life, and he found himself at one point living in a van addicted to heroin. And um, it was a huge struggle, and it took years to, to fight his way back to some level of normalcy and rebuild his life and his career and family. And he was doing pretty well, and then he took another hit. But this time, he approached it differently and really took the time to start to re-examine his life and build the practices and people and strategies and ideas into it that would illuminate the path forward for hopefully his remaining days, which he's still a young guy, are going to be a lot. In today's conversation, we talk about this journey. He's incredibly transparent and real and generous. He's also the co-founder and host of a really tremendous podcast called The One You Feed that I'm a regular listen to. And I have been a past guest on the show and I really enjoy. So you guys should definitely check that out as well. And uh, I think you're going to really enjoy and learn from his lens on how to move through some of the more challenging times in life and uh, do it in sort of a, an adult way that honors the responsibilities that you also may have built around you as you moved into life as well. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Hanging out with Eric Zimmer. 
in the Good Life Project headquarters in the upper west side of Manhattan, where you've come in from the wild, wild, wild Ohio. <laughs> That's right, the wilds of Columbus, Ohio, which is not so wild anymore, as far as it's a lot like a lot of places. Yeah. And it's a, it's a city at this point. It's grown an awful lot since in my lifetime. What's the city known for? Is there like a thing? No, Columbus doesn't have a thing, which is partly what's interesting about it and makes it, I think, a good city in a lot of ways. It's largely recession-proof. Like, a lot of Ohio just got crushed, yeah. you know, as you went through the 70s and the 80s. And But Columbus has a very wide variety of industries. There's no one thing. There's the, there's the huge university. There's a lot of health care. There's a lot of insurance. Mm -hmm. um, lots of Fortune 500 companies there. So it, it just tends to sort of soldier along throughout whatever the economic conditions are. And it's become a very pretty diverse and vibrant city. Again, for, for not having been known for anything, it's, it's got a good food scene. There's lots of good music. We don't have a great independent bookstore. I'd say that's the big, uh, like when I go to a city, like that's like what I'm looking for, exactly. right? It's a great independent bookstore. Yeah. And there just isn't, there isn't anything that, that can compare with, you know, some of the major, you know, well-known independent bookstores like you, ones here, Asheville's got some. I mean, it's just, yeah. that's the one thing I would say is missing, but it doesn't seem like a good business to start particularly right now. You know, it's really interesting because I'm actually really fascinated by that because five years ago, the word on the street around publishing was, you know, basically everybody's going away brick and mortar. And then we saw some of the big boxes, you know, Borders gone. Right. You know, we see Barnes and Noble increasingly giving more floor space to things that are not books. Right. And then everyone's like the Indies are going to be the first ones to just completely vanish because they can't compete, you know? Yep. But what I've seen, at least in the data or like the sort of like the inside the pundits that I've seen sort of sharing like what's really happening is that the really well curated Indies are doing really well. Yep. Yep. I would think so. I mean, if you, it's, it makes sense with what we hear you know, uh, certainly online, there's a lot about, you know, find your market and serve it really well. And some of those bookstores serve it incredibly well. Yeah. I mean, they really do. The author events, there's just, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it than just selling books, but they seem to, they seem to do very well. Yeah. There's also, there's just something about walking into a bookstore like that. I know. It's, it, it's just like, I, you almost see the handwriting on the but you really hope they don't go anywhere because it's there's like a magical place. <laughs> yep, yep. There's no doubt. I mean, and libraries too. I feel the same way yeah. about libraries. Well, interesting future. And even books themselves. I don't know about you, but I, I have my electronic devices when I travel. It's nice to be able to stack books up on them. But give me a chance to just like sit on an old chair on a summer day. And I just, I want the feel of an yep. actual book in my hand, like the smell of the pages. I'm I'm the same way. I think I use the, I've got a, I've got a Kindle reader that I like and it's great when I'm particularly like if I'm preparing for an interview to be able to yeah. highlight passages and it's, but yeah, if I'm going to read something for pleasure, I'll usually, if I can, I'll get the book. Yeah, no, totally agree. We're both in, you know, lovely situations in that we have conversations with people for a living very often, right. authors, so I'm sure, you know, you as well, I, I get opportunities to have books sent to me, on, yep. on a figure. but they're always asking, like, can we give you the digital copy? Or I'm like, I, I'll take the paper copy if you right. have it available, like, I'd rather have that. But yeah, you mentioned the music scene in Columbus, and I know that's kind of like a part, a, a pretty significant part of you is music. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not as much as it used to be as, yeah. a, as I've gotten older, I, I wrestle with that can't do everything to a really high degree of quality. And so what do you, what do you pick? Um, I used to play in bands 
a lot. It was a big part of what I did. I haven't been in a band in several years, but the great part of the show is that Chris and I compose all the music for it. So there's an intro and an outro, and then we do two music breaks every episode. And so we get to write those, which is really, really enjoyable. It's great to be able to bring music into it and have it actually go somewhere. Not that it's, you know, like we're releasing records, but it's just fun to have an outlet for it and to make it part of it. It makes it feel like it's more of all of me, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and which is, I think just such an important thing because like you were alluding to, the further we get into life, we tend to like kind of discount those fringe parts of us that we seem like that we, you know, we feel like, well, we can't really validate because it's not contributing to our you know ability to pay the rent or do whatever it is, but they're such an essential part of us. And I think it takes away so much more than we realize it takes away. Yeah, I agree. And I think for me, it was finding, like with music, a good number of years ago, I finally had to, to really let it go into being a place of a thing that I do for myself and let go of having any attachment to it in any way result wise, you know, cause after being in bands for years, you're trying to get heard, you're yeah. trying to. And I realized I was, as I was older, that was less and less likely unless I wanted to invest the time, which I, I wasn't in a position to. And I realized that I'd start writing something or playing. And then my mindset would be like, okay, this is an idea. I've got to make this thing out of it. And then I, I finally have just kind of given that up to a large extent and just have been able to relax into just the pleasure of it, the, the joy of creating, of, of getting better, of just, just doing something that is really important to me and realizing that it can be really important to me, even if it's something I don't spend a ton of time on. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, it actually touches on something I wanted to talk with you about anyway, which, which I think is really interesting. And it's the notion of trying to take one of the things that really sparks you and, and forcing it to be the thing that also puts food on the table and pays your mortgage Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And it's funny, if you had asked me five years ago, like, should everybody try and do that? I probably would have said yes. And I don't know whether it's just having met so many people that are doing it differently or being a little bit older, but I'm I'm so much more open to the idea and the notion now that actually, you know, it's not actually an entirely bad potential path for anybody to have just a solid mainstream gig Mm -hmm. and then to have, you know, like potentially something that you do, you know, that allows you the freedom and the bandwidth and time to do this on the side and not like you were just saying, not have to worry about whether what you're doing with it is going to, at some point, justify the means by contributing to your income. Yep. You know, I think yep. it gives you so much more freedom to just do it because you love doing it. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I, I when I look at the online space, there's so much of the, you know, chase your passion, follow your dream, quit your job, yeah. do your thing. And and a lot of the people that are, are, a lot of the advocates of that tend to be younger people, which is e- far easier to do when you're 22 yeah, years old. much less risk, yeah. When you're, you know in your mid forties and you've got, you know, two kids in a house and a, and a mortgage in college. To me, the thought of doing that feels irresponsible. It doesn't, you know, it's, and so I think what you said is important. It's like, how do I find, how can I find a balance that, that works? Yeah. Having a job that sucks the life out of you is certainly not the answer. Yeah, in any, I right, agree with that, you on that. That <laughs> gig, you know, the thing that makes bulk your money, and that's kind of the situation I'm in. I mean, the podcast makes some money. The bulk of my earnings come from e-commerce consulting work. And it's not my passion in the same way that the podcast is. I don't love it in the same way. But the work is challenging. 
I get paid well. It's flexible. I love the people I work with. My brain is very engaged. I'm solving problems. I mean, as far as like a job goes, it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great job. And I think had I, with the show, had I um, been forced to figure out how to make it pay the bills, or I've got six months till this podcast can feed the family, right. I would have started making decisions about the podcast that would not have been in the best interest of making the best show I could make. I would have made decisions that would have been really geared to getting more money on the, t you know, get more money into it if I had a limited runway of time. And so by not having had to do that, I feel like I've been able to really do what I feel like, keep a higher degree of integrity about what I'm doing. You know, I get approached by sponsors sometimes and I, some of them, I just say, no, it's not a, not a good fit because I'm in a position to be able to do right. that. If this was how I, was, I had to make the next mortgage payment, I probably would have, you know, sponsors on talking about how you can lose 50 pounds in two weeks with this new super <laughs> shred pill or whatever, right? I've been able to say no to that because of the, the approach I've taken. And I think it's, uh, the Buddha talks about a lot, you know, the middle ways. I think sometimes one of the most profound teachings there. And, and so for me, that's kind of a middle way. It's like, I'm honoring responsibilities to my family. I'm doing things that I committed to doing and saying that I was going to do. And I think you know, you talk about, uh, we both talk a lot about a good life. I think that that's part of the good life that we don't talk about a lot is the responsibilities we sometimes have to others. The honoring of those, I think, does create a good life, even though it doesn't always maybe feel as good as some of the things we do that are more directly for us. But I think it, it allows me to do that and feel good in that area of my life and also really have a creative outlet and something to do that I love doing and, and helps people. And, and so it's, it's a good situation now. And I can then make the transition, you know, over a longer period of time with a, just less panic and less fear. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's interesting too. I want to circle back to a couple of things, especially your exploration of Buddhism, because I know it's something that you that dances through your mind a lot. But the, just the notion that you're just sharing about honoring the the role—it's like Viktor Frankl's work, honoring the role of of work and mm -hmm. even a certain level of suffering as a source of meaning, right? Which you know leads to a good life, um, rather than sort of like the more common definition of you know like it's all that happiness. You know, I think when you can really frame what you're doing as, look, I'm, I made a certain commitment, right? you know, and it's important, like it's part of my value system that right. I actually honor that. And if it means that I'm not doing, there's a certain amount of sacrifice that goes along with it, but because it's in the name of something that I actually feel strongly about, I can experience that as a source of meaning rather than just a source of gutting myself, that there's value to that, that I think we don't give enough to. Yeah. And I think the really important part of that is to become conscious of that. Mm. When we get into, I have to, I can't go do the podcast full time because I have to take care of the kids. Well, no, actually I don't have to take care of the kids really. I mean, I don't have to do any of those things. So when I switch out of that mindset into, I'm choosing to do it this way because I value these yeah. things, then I'm not in a stuck or victim or feeling bad for myself role. I'm realizing that, okay, every action has a consequence. And if I were to take the route that, that, you know, only did what was important to me, um, I don't think I would, I think I'd end up being far less happy, even though I was chasing happiness, because there would be this underlying sense of not having done the things that mean a lot to us. But our culture really pushes very hard the, you know, 
do you know do what makes you happy follow your passion and and again i i'm not suggesting people should stay in situations that are miserable or but i think the it's a grayer area than we sometimes make it yeah i completely agree and, and like you were framing it also i think the further you move into life the more you start to say like there are certain responsibilities that that are actually really important to me mm -hmm. the more you, you just make different decisions you know and the more i know my it's funny i actually just turned 50 and I didn't, no birthday really made me reflect, um, but this did. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting it I'm, at I'm all. headed that direction and I'm, I, I'm sort of feeling that way in advance of it. Like that one feels different somehow than the other ones. Like the other ones I yeah. kind of just let slide by, but. Yeah. And, and, I, and it took me by surprise and, and I'm finding myself a lot more, the, this word significance keeps coming into my thought process where, um, it wasn't, I thought, I, it just wasn't a really huge thing for me. And, but I'm really thinking, I'm like, you know what, you know, is what I'm doing really significant? And how do I even define that? Right. And, you know, should I even care? And I do care, you know, and I, and I do feel like there's a certain honoring of like really, when I make a choice to put my energy into something, like, is it contributing in some way to, is it a significant action, mm -hmm. you know, or, or am I just, dawdling. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I think with kids that gets particularly interesting because a lot of what we do with kids doesn't feel significant in the moment of what you're doing. Mm. Take it's, me into that more. Well, like driving a kid to um, somewhere he wants to be. That particular action doesn't feel significant. Not in the same way that talking to someone who listens to your show, who's really upset and sends you an email and you write something back. It doesn't, they, they feel different in some way. But when I look at like the child growing up and the importance of that, it's like all of these little insignificant actions taken individually, but add up into a really big significance, yeah. which is feeling like to the best of our ability, to the best of my ability, I raised uh, my son in a way that, that felt good. I, you know, I feel like I did the best I could by him. That is very, very significant, but it's very easy to miss that because the individual moments don't seem as significant as a lot of moments that, that can be more dramatic that we're presented with and sometimes having to just say, like, I think all, uh, anybody who's got a career in kids wrestles with this. Like, I think you, kids got a football game that night. You've been to a bunch of football games. There's something important happening at work. It seems very significant. It seems very dramatic. And those decisions are always challenging to make. Um, but I think it's that having the asking yourself what's more significant in the broader terms versus maybe just what's it gets back to that Stephen Covey thing of urgent versus important. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I think it also it, it's funny as you were speaking, Brene Brown's answer to the question when I asked her what it meant to her to live a good life was, you know, it's it's about honoring all the tiny little moments that we steamroll past in the yep. name of trying to get to the big moment. <laughs> You know, and, but what I really think when you really zoom the lens out, like fundamentally it goes back to what you kind of started the conversation with, which is awareness. Right. I think that's, that's been such a big focus of everything I've been thinking about lately. I mean, I think you know, the good life question to me, I think awareness is it right at the heart of it. Cause without it, who even knows? Like, I think that's the biggest battle I feel like I fight is just going on to autopilot and just doing what comes up next because life has plenty of nexts to throw at me yeah. all the time. 
And if I'm not very aware of things, I, it's so easy to go into that autopilot, whether it be the actions I take or, you know, for, for myself, a lot of times, just the way I think, my thought patterns, my, the way I view the world, all that goes into this sort of autopilot. And I'm not being conscious about not choosing my view of the world in any sort of conscious way. Nah. Which for me, I mean, I have a, I've wrestled with depression uh, on and off for years. And so I think left to my own devices, my mind doesn't go to a particularly sunny place. It just sort of, I think, you know, who knows, is it the way I think, or is it emotions? Is it a shortage of neurochemicals? I mean, there's a thousand explanations, but if I'm not consciously sort of framing and working with that, it's very easy for me to get into sort of a, you know, my inner Eeyore kind of wakes up and, you know, you know, and so that's, you know, for me to be aware that that's happening is so important because then I can work with it, but it's so easy to not even be aware of it or be aware that there's a choice in what's happening internally. Yeah. Do you feel like you're, you've become, or, or the process of becoming aware of your sort of just state of mind, state of being has, has increased over oh. a window of time? I think greatly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely and continues to increase as a, from a combination of things. I mean, I honestly started the show to a large degree because I wanted to be consistently reminded of these kind of truths. And I thought, well, if I talk to somebody every week about it and I read their book about it, you know, between episodes, like this stuff's going to stay in the front of my mind. And it really worked. I mean, it's like they, a lot of things we talk about with habit design, right? It's like, put things in your way, you know, make it. Right. So I've, tr I've tried to engineer my life in such a way that the, that I'm reminded of those things regularly, uh, because I think that I don't remember it. My normal state is not to remember it really well. I think I've gotten a lot better by design in my life, by getting older. Um, so it's definitely gotten better, but it's, it's still not, you know, I guess nobody's, nothing's ever perfect, but it's still there, that tendency to sort of just get into, I'm very busy with what's happening and I'm thinking about all the things that have to get done in the day and all that different stuff. And I'm, and I'm not really realizing that, you know, what's the lens I'm looking through. Yeah. So what are some of the, you mentioned sort of designing your life and you mentioned putting things in your way. And I th it's funny because I think if a lot of people hear the phrase, you know, put something in your way that strikes them as a negative thing, actually, like it's a roadblock, but you, you meant it differently. And I want to make sure that we, yeah, I mean, a, a, an example would be like, if you want to, um, play guitar more, right. Put your guitar somewhere you're always going to be. Right. Right. It's so, it, it's amazing to me how the difference between a guitar hanging on a hook by your couch versus a guitar sitting in a case at the foot of the couch, how right. much more often it'll get played. I mean, it's totally different experience as somebody who's done both. Right. And it's, it almost makes me like what we are such, sometimes such, um, we're dogs. Know. Yeah. <laughs> exa dogs. Ex exactly. Like we're really not that much more it, evolved. <laughs> it takes 20 extra seconds, literally. And, and yet that's the difference between right. doing it and not doing it. So designing my life is things like doing the show was an example. Um, it's for, for keeping myself in a positive mind space. It's doing the show. But before I did the show, I would do things like make sure I'm having conversations with people who that's the way they think about the world, you know, making sure intentionally to schedule those sort of things, um, being intentional about doing reading at certain time, or if I'm not intentional about trying to put positive things into my brain, then 
my brain tends to go to more negative places. I'd like to think that I hear these things once and I remember them, but more and more I've just become very convinced that emotional and mental health is exactly like physical health. It's, you don't eat, you know, carrots one day and expect to be healthy for the next week, right? You eat carrots every day or you, you don't go to the gym once and expect it to last for two weeks. Depends what advertisement you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I've just become, I, I've gotten more and more used to that fact. Like there's no, um, the point's not going to come where I'm going to learn something the right way or hear it in the right way or find the right teacher or, or anything where this stuff's going to click and stay clicked. Like I'm a human being, I think we're all human beings, and it means that we're always, it's kind of the parable of the show, right? The good wolf versus the bad wolf. It's, I, I like the parable because it's saying like, this is always going on in every human. This, this sort of wrestling with being aware or unaware, or conscious or un, you know, unconscious, or being intentional about what you do, or choosing to see the good things in life versus the bad things in life. And I think I for a long time just thought if I found the right thing, that would click in and it would stay there. And, yeah. and my experience is it's, that's not going to happen. It is a consistent effort. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the, the truth. But to try and think it's going to go away and not be that way, I think, is, is um, I'm a lot more productive when I just accept, all right, I need to put those things in my life and they're going to stay in my life. Those are routines that stay a part of my life. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a huge awakening. It, it was like when I actually kind of stepped back and I'm like, wait a minute. There is no there there, you know, right. there is, it's not a location, it's a lens, Yep. you know, and it's like, you can put on the glasses right now. That doesn't mean everything gets beautiful right now, but that means you just choose to say, okay, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to get to that place. I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to wake up and do the work today and tomorrow and the next day and the next mm -hmm. day. And over time, I'm just going to experience the world differently. Yep. And you know, there's no final place where you're like, oh, hell, I'm at the good life place. Or I'm at, I'm at the happy place. I'm good. Like I can stop everything. Right, right. <laughs> Which is exactly, I think, the way that a lot of us view the world. And yeah. so we keep searching because that's what we're expecting. Right. You know, it's, and that's, I think, why we, you know, the next superfood that comes along, everybody's going to try. Because the previous superfood was supposed to fix it and it didn't. Right. You know, or the previous type of yoga, you know, was supposed to do it and it didn't. Or transcendental meditation was supposed to be the final thing and it, it wasn't. And it's. And so I think, I mean, I often think, and I don't know if you wrestle with this, I wrestle with this a little bit with the show in that every week I'm throwing sort of new information and content out there. And the reality is, I think for the vast majority of us, we don't need more new stuff. We need reminding of, of basic principles. So for me, I try and frame the show in that way. And, and I think that's exactly what you do while well, you've got a yeah. theme like the Good Life Project that brings everything back to that lens. And, and I try and do the same thing with my, my own themes. But more and more, I realize it's for the vast majority of us, we don't need to learn something we don't know. We just need to do the things we know to do. Yeah more consistently and regularly. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. There's a recent, um, I recently heard Derek Saver say, you know, um, what was his line? It was great. He's like, if information was the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs. <laughs> it's like such an awesome line. Um, but it, but it's, it's entirely true. And so it's interesting that you say that because sometimes I kick back and I'm like, what am I actually doing with this? You know, like I'm sitting across from you, like a bright guy who goes deep into these questions and, and like you, we both have the opportunity to just have it's amazing conversations, but what am I really doing with it? Because mm -hmm. 
I think adding different voices that can just frame things and tell stories in a way where somebody can transfer into that story and for the first time realize that the thing that they've heard a thousand times before yeah. actually, oh, this is how it actually works for me and it's real. That's right, yeah. And I think part of what I'm, I'm realizing we're creating also is a body of proof. You know, my sense is, and I'm curious what you think about this, my sense is that one of the biggest challenges to consistent doing the work, which we know is really just the answer for all of this, mm-hmm. it's that deep down, I think there's a voice in people where, where like, they're like, I'm not necessarily sure I believe that if I do the work, it's really going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So I almost feel like what, what both of us are doing to a certain extent is we're putting up case studies from all walks of life, not, you know, some teachers, but also case studies. Mm-hmm. That kind of showed like almost no matter where you came from, there are some of these ideas can make a real lasting difference if you do the work day in, day out. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. I hadn't actually thought of it that way before. I think that makes a lot of sense. I had a conversation with somebody last week that sort of spoke to this a little bit. And so I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict and this person uh, works in the works in a particular church, a particular religion, and they have decided they want to start a 12 step group for people of their faith. And it was interesting because what I what I ultimately landed with is my biggest piece of advice was just make sure there's lots of other sober people around. Mm. Because that's the biggest piece of that is that you sit there and you feel hopeless, but you sit in a room with a lot of other people who say, I was just like you, and they tell the kind of stories you heard. And you look at them and you can just see like, wow, that person is actually in a much better place. They're yeah. content and happy. And that is... To your point, it's a case study that says, oh, if I do these things, you know, that could be me too. And so I think that's such a critical part of whatever journey we're on is to, is to be able to see people where we want to be. Yeah. And you know, the really interesting thing, every time I think about that from like a role model perspective or whatever, I think of something that Carol Dweck said on her show, you know, the fixed and the, the growth mindset. Right. And the thing that she said on there that really blew me away was that people with a fixed mindset can't have role models or mentors. They see those people as a threat because they think they're fixed where they are. So instead of when I started this show, instead of seeing you and what you were doing and saying like, wow, that is an amazingly good show. I think I can make a really great show. If I was more in the fixed mindset and I couldn't make a show that good, I wouldn't have been able to look at you as somebody to, to, you know, as a guide along the way, I would have looked at you as a threat. Mm. And so that really struck me about the way we, that when we change our mindset about fixed or growth with things, then we can see people further along the path for what they are, which is people further along the path that we can follow, not people to be envious or jealous of. Yeah, I, I love that. For people who aren't familiar with Coward Direct's work, can you share a little bit about just the distinction between fixed and growth mindset? Yeah, she has this this idea that we all have either a fixed or a growth mindset, not necessarily like I have a fixed mindset and Jonathan has a growth mindset in all ways. It's, it depends, you know, like I have a fixed mindset in certain areas and I might have a growth mindset in other areas. And But the basic difference is that a growth mindset just says, hey, I can get better at whatever this thing is. I can become more of whatever I want to be. And the fixed mindset just sort of says, I am what I am. I'm as good at that as I'm going to be. And doesn't really try and feels very stuck. And I think that that's such a, I do a lot of work with people around habits. And the thing I hear from people so often is I'm the kind of person who always quits what they start. Mm. 
I'm the kind of person who's lazy and doesn't like to work out. I'm the kind of, and that's the fixed mindset. And the growth mindset isn't like, oh, well, I mean, it's not, it's not silly. Like, oh, if I have a growth mindset, I'm going to play basketball like Michael Jordan. That's not going to happen. But if I wanted to take a growth set around basketball, like a growth mindset around basketball, I would say, I don't really know how good I could get, but I could get a lot better, you know, versus. And so that's, that's the main difference. And I just find that it's a, it's one of those very simple, but very fundamental things to stop and say, well, how am I looking at this situation? How am I looking at that? And which of those am I in? And it can make such a big difference day to day and really little things. Yeah. No, I love that. And I'm such a huge fan of her work also. And f- fantastic conversation with her on your show, by the way. You guys should um, definitely check out that particular episode. It's a really wonderful conversation. You mentioned a couple of times now that at various points in your life, you have, I don't know if word, the word struggle is the right word. It'd probably be a good with word. With depression, <laughs> um, with addiction, with alcohol. Yeah. Are, yeah. are you open to sharing a bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So what? At, at how early in, in your life did you become aware of the fact that these were part of what was going on? Um, I mean, as I look back on myself as a, as a kid and as an adolescent, I can see that a lot of this stuff was already there. I was a troubled child. I mean, I was a kleptomaniac by the age of 10, like Mm. really hardcore. I don't know why. I mean, there aren't good answers as to why. I mean, people will say, well, why are you an addict or an alcoholic? I, we could speculate on that, and it's an interesting speculation, but I don't think there's any real answer. Thank God that you don't need to know that answer in order to fix it. So I think early on, I recognize, I mean, looking back, I can see I, I was troubled. I was not a happy kid. For whatever reason, it just wasn't there. So I started to, I drank a little bit in high school. And I, again, look back, I can see like I drank very abnormally. I didn't do it very often, but I would do things like I would drink and I would wake up the next morning and there'd be a bottle still there and I would just pour it in my orange juice and drink it again right away. Like nice. first thing. Yeah. Wow. It's not like I went on long binges. I did right. it very once in a while. Um, I drank mouthwash a lot. I mean, like I can see looking back, like I was not drinking like the other kids my age. Were you aware of that at the time? No, no idea. And then I actually stumbled into, I created a nonprofit program to tutor inner city kids when I was in high school. So the idea was take suburban high schoolers to tutor inner city elementary kids. And once I started doing that, I saw the wreckage of drugs and alcohol in those kids' lives, their parents. I was like, I, I was like, I'm not doing any of that stuff. And I kind of swore it off. Several years later, I was in a lot of emotional pain and somebody said, take a drink. You, know, you want this? And I just, for whatever reason said, sure. And it was kind of like I was off to the races from then. It was like the, I, like a switch flipped and I just suddenly was like this is the greatest thing ever this is the answer to everything I still claim that two drinks is the best antidepressant I know of I mean I've never found anything nearly as effective obviously it has a lot of side effects so I you know I spent the next six years probably rarely being sober Mm. doing that same sort of drink wake up start drinking again or smoke pot first thing in the morning or just I was rarely drawing a breath that wasn't, you know, altered by some substance. What else was going on in your life at that, during that sort of six year window? A lot of kind of nothing. Um, I didn't go to college. I made a play at being a musician, but I mean, drugs and alcohol were the most important thing. So so it reached a point where it was really like, it was affecting your ability to really do anything else. Yeah. It's really interesting because I, um, you know, I, I didn't go to college. I didn't have a car. I had, and none of that stuff really mattered much to me. 
I think I, you know, as it went on, I started realizing like this isn't good. And I moved to California to try and uh, sober up. I don't know why I thought moving to San Francisco would sober me up. It didn't. I just became more, I just started coming to in places where I didn't know where I was instead of coming to like going, oh, I know where I'm at. So I started to know there was a problem, but it wasn't really until I remember an incident. I had an opportunity to apprentice with this guy who was a classical guitar teacher. And he was like, you know what? If we work together for six or nine months, you could start getting gigs going out doing it. Like I saw this, this real path towards something I thought I really wanted. And when I was unable to stop getting high for that, I think was the first real dawning for me of like, uh oh, this is problems. Because the other things were things that people wanted for me. Mm. You know, you should want to go to college. And so did I want to go? Kind of because it was pressure, but it wasn't in my heart. That was in my heart and I, I couldn't do it. It took me many years to get sober after that happened. I mean, I eventually ended up a heroin addict. I was living in the back of a van. Um, you know, I didn't have anywhere to live. I, I weighed 50 pounds less than I weigh now. I mean, if you can just, I mean, I'm not wow. very big to start, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was dying. I had hepatitis C. I mean, I was dying. I had 25 years of jail time because of felonies hanging over my head at the age of 24. And so that's kind of where it took me. And um, I found my way into rehab and just became willing at each step along the way to very grudgingly say, okay, to the next thing they suggested I do until at one point I finally went to sort of like we were talking about before, where I finally went, oh, wait a minute, this could be different. Because I think I lived under the idea of an ad once an addict, always an addict. Like mm -hmm. I didn't think I was going to get better. I didn't think there was a way to get better. And that's a pretty dark place. So, yeah, I, I, I got into recovery really at the end of my, you know, starting in my 25th year and really threw myself into AA and um, that was how I got sober was, was AA, 12-step programs, really threw myself into that and pretty much completely turned my life around, you know, such a huge shift. Was the process of moving from this is just the way I am, this is going to be my life and it's not actually possible to live differently to having like moving to a place of possibility was there was it a gradual process or was there a moment in time or something that happened that kind of i think it was it was gradual and halting there'd be a few minutes of hope i mean and i think that that's what you know i 12 step programs saved my life twice actually because we could go into a later story there's a lot about 12 step work 12 step stuff that i don't love things there that I don't, I don't think are ideal. I wish it, I wish there was some reform to be done. Um, I don't think it works for the reason that a lot of people think it works. But one of the reasons I think it works so much is exactly what we talked about earlier is I would get, you know, what they did is they just kept taking me to meetings, kept taking me to meetings. And I just kept seeing people, you know, who, you know, based on what they're saying, you're like, that's, I hear my insides being spoken up there and that person is better. And so some nights maybe you're like, ah, it's never going to work for me. But other nights you're like, I think it might. And so it was just this gradual, you know, keep doing it until all of a sudden you've got a week or two weeks or a month or two months and you start suddenly going, oh, wait a minute. I, it's not even a question of could it work for me? It's a question of it is working for me. And then it's just a matter of continue, you know, continuing to just do that thing. What, you know, what is that thing you and I were talking about earlier? I think I, I come to the idea that if I want to maintain a certain level of uh, serenity and health, that there are things I have to continue to do. I think that comes a little more naturally to me after being in 12-step programs for so long, because that's kind of 
uh, an assumption or uh, a thing that we're often told. You're going to need to do this. You're going to need to maintain your sobriety the rest of your life. Yeah. Which originally sounds like this awful and daunting thing. But what I found is that the things that I do to maintain my sobriety are the same things that make me happy and serene and peaceful. They're the same thing. So I'm driven to those things kind of under the threat of death in my case. But sooner or later, I realize like, well, those are the things I want to be doing. Yeah. I mean, and they also tend to be the things that are really effective at helping you move through depression, which, you know, you said, wove through this whole thing where, and you know, depression has that same, from what I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've seen from the outside looking in that same, and I, I could never really fathom or understand the depth of futility that goes along with it, of disbelief that there will ever be a day that's different from today until I, I you know, I saw it unfold in, you know, the, the live or lives of people close to me. And it's the same thing you're kind of talking about with, you know, being deep mm-hmm. into addiction and when you layer those things on top of each other, yeah. it's got to be brutal. But also there's like the, the flip side of what you're saying now. It's almost like the same things that you do to open the window of possibility from moving from addicted mm-hmm. to, you know, like to being okay in the world and also from being moving from, I can't believe that there will ever be a day that's different from today to maybe, mm-hmm. may, just maybe, you know, it's the same stuff. And it's really good for you too. <laughs> oh, it, it, it is really good for me. And I don't do nearly as much 12-step stuff no. anymore. But because my understanding of you know 12-step work, and I think most people, if you talk to, they would say that the 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 goal of, of 12-step works is to, you know, most people would say to connect you to God, you know, connect you to your higher power. I would just say to connect you. You know, there's a line in AA that says something about, you know, it's as long as we're in fit spiritual condition, we can remain our remain sober. And so what does that fit spiritual condition mean? It's a, it's a spiritual, such a vague word anyway. But what I've kind of realized is that I can stay in fit spiritual condition a lot of different ways. Yeah. And as long as I'm staying there, drinking's not a problem, whether I go to meetings or I don't go to meetings. Um, now, I stopped going to meetings at one point in the past and, and, and got drunk again. Um, so, but I was not, I, I, I lost sight of the spiritual connection piece at all. I became more and more just obsessed with me. And, mm. and that's the surest way for me to get sick is to just think about myself all day long. And, you know, I will get worse and worse in whatever category you want to describe. Uh, was there something that triggered that? To drink again? Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a combination of things. I was about eight years sober. Um, and about a little while before that, my, uh, my son's mother... And I were married and she came home one day and said, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm in love with someone else. And I kind of fell apart. I didn't pick up a drink. What happened though, is I had gone into AA and I had sort of, you know, under the threat of death again, right? Like I'm going to die. I mean, I was dying. I felt like I had to believe in God. And so I worked really hard to find, to start believing other people's ideas about God. And when the shit hit the fan for me, I realized I did not have a spiritual life that worked. I had sort of like a a baby's idea of spirituality. And so then I realized I had nothing to lean on. So I stayed sober through the worst of that divorce. But what happened was that I didn't have a spiritual connection. I started to get more and more interested in me. You know, I started uh, 
sleeping around more. I, I mean, I started smoking in my mid thirties. I had been a heroin addict and had never smoked. And all of a sudden now I'm sober, like eight years smoking cigarettes. It's like, <laughs> I look back and I'm like, well, that was pretty clear. The writing was on the wall. Um, I just drifted further and further away. And all of a sudden I hit a point where the thought started coming to me that maybe I'm not an addict or an alcoholic because mm -hmm. I was 22 years old, right? I'm, I'm in my, I'm in my mid thirties now. And I go, well, I was just a kid and I was doing heroin. I mean, obviously that's a terrible idea. I'm not saying I'm going to go do that again. No one should do that, but a couple of drinks and oh boy, I've been to a lot of therapy and I make good decisions in my life, but right? Maybe it was just a phase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I mean, I go to work, I take good care of my son. I'm making good decisions on a day to day basis. Maybe I just didn't know how to make good decisions then. And then I think the la the final straw was my brother had been in recovery for a long time. And I found out that he had been out drinking for about a year. And his report was, I'm fine. And so I went, oh, well, that's not genetic either. So I thought, I'll try it again. And um, it worked just fine for a little while. You know, I had a drink and the world didn't end. And I didn't end up out on the street corner shooting heroin. And But I found my way back. So it tells you the story didn't didn't end too well. But that's what led me back to it was I think I really thought that for me that alcohol was just like it. Alcohol and drugs were just like everything else. I just needed to make good decisions. And, and I don't know why it's not that way with me. I don't know why that thing is different for yeah. me, but it is because I cannot that just uh, alcohol and drugs become the most important thing to me. I could say my son was more important, but I didn't act like it. If I was honest about what was happening inside of me, nothing was more important. And, and so I eventually did get sober again, thankfully, before anything really bad happened. Almost nothing bad happened. I was lucky enough to be able to sort of step off without having to ride it to the bottom. It was a lot harder than the first time because the first time I got sober, I mean, I had pretty much been handed my ass. I mean, I was really in trouble. And this time I had just gotten the best job I ever had. I mean, from the outside, everything looked really good. So it was a lot more of an intellectual exercise. I had to keep telling myself, well, if I do this, then, and I think for all of us, if our consequences are down the road, it's so much harder to do yeah, than, you know. just the way their brains are wired. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a lot harder, but I just kept saying to myself, do I really have to do this? Do I really have to get like in a car accident with my son because I'm drinking in order to stop this? Do I, do I really have to play this out? Or can I just be, because I knew in my heart that, I was every bit the addict or alcoholic I was at that point than when I was shooting heroin and living in a van. There was no difference in my internal state. My outside was different, but the inside was the same, which was that this is the most important thing. Getting high is the most important thing. Nah. And so I was, a, you know, I've been sober, I think almost nine years back. I've been back about nine years. So yeah, yeah that's that, that's that journey. Yeah. You've talked about 12-step being sort of, a, or at least some of the principles of philosophy is the structure, the frame of that being important in both your recovery and sort of your day-to-day. Mm -hmm. -day. Certainly a little bit back further also, we touched a little bit on your exploration of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. But from what I know, it's also, it's something that you kind of geek out on to a certain extent, um, as, as do yeah. I. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious how much you look to Eastern philosophy to guide your decisions and behaviors and daily practices that you feel really add to your ability to not just sustain yourself, but also flourish. 
Probably a fair amount. I would say that it's, I've been looking at that stuff long enough now. Same thing with 12 steps. I've looked at that stuff long enough. I feel like it's, I can't even tell sometimes like how much of it is the influence because it's just the way my brain yeah. sort of sees the world now. But I think Eastern philosophy, you know, particularly Buddhism has had a huge influence on the way I see the world. I wouldn't describe myself as a Buddhist necessarily. Um, but I think that the diagnosis of the human condition that the Buddha gave is a pretty accurate one. I don't, depending on how people interpret or translate, I don't agree with, I don't agree with it all the way, but I think there's a ton of, there's a ton of um, wisdom in there. I get so much, you know, there's so many different things that were, that the Buddha taught that were so wise that I think it, it more than anything else I've seen describes, I think what it is to be a human. Yeah. I agree with that. And they relate to it so much. One of the fundamental, and again, I'm wondering if this is what you're talking about in terms of how it's translated. One of the fundamental things that I've talked to a lot of people about and struggled with is some variation of a teaching that life is innately suffering. And I've tried to get comfortable with that or really trying to understand what that means. I'm curious whether you've explored that. Yeah, I have. And actually, that's not one I have trouble with. Hmm. Because I think that if I just look at See, I found that I don't know if I took it is that, you know, all of life is always suffering. The way I read that is there's going to be suffering in life. You know, there's going to be pain in life. And I think that at least in some of the the, the more contemporary Buddhist teachers, pain and suffering are sort of split apart mm, from each other. I right. And so the idea that there is pain in life, I frankly, the first time I read it, I was like, finally, somebody's telling the truth. You're yeah. like, whoa, okay, I can get behind this because we all, we all have pain. We're going to die. That's not going to be, it's not lovely. People we know are going to die. That's not going to feel good. You know, I'm going to get a headache later, you know, some, you know, sooner in my life, I'm going to have another one that's going to be painful. So I found that was very, I find that to be one of the most refreshing things about Buddhism because it's not sugarcoating. <laughs> it's not sugarcoating. And all of a sudden, it's not me either. Mm. I don't have to think that I'm failing because there's pain in my life. It's just the human condition. It happens to all of us. And, and we do not have a good relationship with that in the West. It is not. We think we should always be healthy, active, happy. And I don't think that comes with being human. There are those things happen, but they're not the only thing that happen. And so that fundamental idea that there is pain and that we all have some of it for me is a very comforting thing because yeah. I go, oh, this is perfectly normal. You know, it's interesting because uh, there's a really nuanced distinction that makes a profound difference in the way it, I completely agree with the, the idea that there is pain. Life is pain is the thing that I mm -hmm. struggle with. And I've heard it taught sort of like across the spectrum. Yep. Yep. I agree. I mean, I think where Buddhism and I part ways usually, and it's where I part way, where I end up parting ways with almost all religious teachings is when it veers into certain metaphysical things that just don't make sense to mm -hmm. me. So all of a sudden, like I'm good with Buddhism up till we start talking about rebirth. And I'm not saying that there isn't rebirth. I don't have any idea, but the idea that my goal should be to get to a point where I never get born again it's just, it's, it's, it doesn't work for me. It's much easier for me to stop short of that because inherent in that, if that's the goal, then is inherent that being born is a bad thing and right. life is pain, you know? And so that's not, I don't, I kind of, I kind of stop there. And depending on who you talk to, people will say, well, that's not really what the Buddha taught. It was just the culture he was in. He was in a culture. So he inherited that in the same way that, 
you know, you and I are inheriting tons of cultural things that we probably can't even see that are assumptions based in what we do. So from that perspective, I think that I agree with you. The idea that life is pain, I don't agree with. I think that there is pain in life is, yeah. is the more. And then, you know, and then the, the distinction that I find so helpful is the idea of the suffering. Is the suffering, as I always think of, is the things we layer on top of the pain. So I have a headache and instead of going, I have a headache, humans get headaches. That's some, you know, I'm such an idiot. I shouldn't have drank that extra cup of coffee today or, you know, I mean, whatever the various, I wonder if this headache's a brain tumor. I'm going to, you know, all those stories that I start laying around, those are the suffering that I think Buddhism is saying, Hey, you don't have to have those. You have to have the pain. There's pain that's going to come to you in life but you don't have to make it worse. I think, I mean, ultimately, sometimes I think that's what it boils down to is you just don't have to make it worse. Yeah, uh, I, I so agree with that. I've tended to sort of sound in my head 24 seven. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, I was one of those, the smaller subset of people where it was brutal and it was really destroying a lot for me. And it was my sort of adaptation of a mindfulness practice that really brought me back out of it because it allowed me to understand that the sound that is in my head 24 seven isn't actually doing anything to me. Right. I live in New York city. I've got sound bombarding me 24 seven and I don't care about it. Yeah. You know, so let me kind of like say, well, it's the story that I'm telling mm -hmm. about this sound in my head. That's crushing me. You yep. know, it's the alarm. It's the way that I'm sort of the overlay, the model that I'm building mm -hmm. around this thing that's translating that as, you know, like this is destroying you. This is horrible. I can't think about anything else. You know, it's some bigger thing. Right. Rather than the fact that this is one of many sounds that I happen to hear all day, every day. Yep. You know, and when I started to be able to use a little bit of, you know, mindfulness-based co cognitive therapy mm -hmm. retraining and also just pure mindfulness practice on a daily basis, that became a huge unlocky for me. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's like the, the stimulus was there and remains there to this day. Mm -hmm. But the the way that I was able to experience it completely changed it from it's there to just, you know, like it's not suffering for me. Right. You yeah. know, but it's still, th like the circumstance is still there, but I don't suffer it. That's right. Would you choose to have it go away? Of course, but right. but you don't suffer. And I, I, I think about this a lot, this idea of, um, I did a mini episode a long while back about like noticing, but not resisting. Mm. Like I play with this in the cold a lot. Like I step outside in the cold and immediately my brain starts going, I'm freaking freezing. It's <laughs> you know, especially in Ohio <laughs> immediately. Right. But I notice if I, if I stop that and I just notice what it feels like to be cold and I don't resist it, it's, it's fine. I mean, would I choose to be in a warm house? Of course, but it's that clenching up and resisting it. That no. causes so much trouble. And I just can see that in all, you know, I can, I can, I see more and more of all the areas in my life that I do that, you know, that I, that I'm capable of doing that, of mm -hmm. sort of clenching up and resisting versus going, ah, this is okay. I mean, it works for physical pain. Now I don't have chronic pain. I'm not trying to say like, oh, if you've got chronic pain, if you just are a little bit more mindful, everything's fine. I'm not, you know, there's studies that show that mindfulness does help chronic pain. But for me, if I have pain, if I turn away from the story in my head of this hurts so bad, oh, it hurts, I don't, you know, whatever, whatever unconscious, just sort of misery sound, you know, my inner Eeyore again, and I just pay attention to the actual stimulus, the stimulus is not as bad as the story that I'm telling myself. And that, that tends to be true kind of across the board. It's not easy to do. And I think that's why having a, a concentrated mindfulness practice is helpful. 
because I think it helps me, you know, sitting down to meditate every day helps me to actually then be able to do those things a little bit better out in the rest of the world. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, that's why to, to this day, you know, it's now years past where I was in this sort of acute phase, but every single day starts with a sitting practice Yeah, because it's, it's just sets up the entire mm -hmm. rest of the day. And, and it's the things I don't, I'm curious if you experience it this way also, it's not so much the things that I notice that are so different. It's the over time I'll be like, Oh, I'm not actually responding the way that I probably like, I'm not as agitated as I would have been yep. a few months or a few years ago at really similar circumstances like this high stress environment. I'm actually kind of more, there's a sense of equanimity mm -hmm. and I don't really notice it until I kind of just pause for a moment. I'm like, Oh, I'm actually reacting. I'm responding differently than I used to respond here. That's, that's actually kind of cool. It's, and it's making, it's making my experience of this moment better. And it's making the more I can string these moments together. It's just making my life better. Yep. I agree. I mean, I think meditation has helped me a lot. It's, it's oversold, I think. I mean, oh, I think so we, hot. especially mindfulness, right? Yeah. Now. It's like the hottest thing. Yeah. And it's, and you know, for it's years. It's not a cure. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not. Yeah. It's, if for years, I think I was stopped from having a good, steady, daily meditation practice by the fact that I thought I must not be able to do it right because I wasn't getting what people described. Like meditation for me is not a, um, blissful experience i don't my yeah. my brain rarely i either a lot of times i'm either half asleep or i'm thinking too much mm -hmm. um but i'm not at peace when i'm meditating but i i think like you i find that it just over time um back to victor frankel who you talked about earlier he's got that that saying that you know between stimulus and response there's a space and in that space lies all our human freedoms. And I think for me, the best description of what meditation does is it increases that space a little mm. bit. It allows me just a little bit more time to think, what do I want to do with this? You know, my brain will start to, you know, the habitual will start. And I, I, more often I can go, is that what I want to think? Is that really what I think? Is that like, I can just become a little bit more conscious about something's happening and say, do I want to, want, to, want to do that? I think I've gotten good over the years by lots of different practices. I'm not outwardly very reactive to things. I mean, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty calm. Mm. If someone starts yelling at me, I tend to just not, I don't, I don't engage. But internally, it's a different, di different things are happening. So I, I think I have got the external, val you know, not reacting down, which is, I think, an important skill to learn. If you don't have that one, it's, it's a good place to start. But it's more the internal now that I'm getting where I just don't even start to, like you said, I'm just not even getting sucked into it in the same way. Yeah. Or if I start to, I can recognize like, oh, this is happening. And, you know, I think we, we started the conversation off around awareness and being conscious about what we're doing. And that's what, ultimately, that's what I want from my meditation practice is to be more aware of what am I doing? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Why? And is that what I want? Yeah. No, completely agree. I love that. And it feels like a good place to kind of come full circle too. So maybe this is good life project. So if I offer that term out to you to live a good life, what comes up? I knew I was going to get asked that question since I've listened to a ton of your podcasts. And ultimately the thing I ended up with mostly was, I think that's a really difficult thing to pin down in a definition. I don't know that I can, um, but I do think it has something to do with um, consciousness, intention, and awareness. I think that when I am in that state, my life is generally pretty good. 
because I'm in a place where I am choosing from a higher part of myself what I want to do, how I want to see the world, how I want to interact with the people in the world. I am building the life that matters to me, whatever that might mean. And I think that changes over time, you know, what's important to me or what. But if I'm living from a place where I'm at least doing that, I'm making a choice, I think that that's, the, that's a good life to me, is knowing that, I guess, control is a word we all frown at a lot, but I, where I feel like I'm sort of in control of myself, not in a negative limiting way, but in a positive and life enhancing way. I'm not letting my brain do whatever thing it wants to. I've kind of, you know, because if I'm aware, then I can do like what Brene Brown said. I can choose to be grateful for the small moments. But if I'm not even aware, I can't even, I can't even get there. So I think that's for me what, what it means. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.